open to Malachi chapter 3. Now, when our son was in the fourth or fifth grade, he had an assignment that he was to exhibit something that had perspective. After thinking about it for a while, uh, Todd decided to take some photographs that showed something that was determined to be visual perspective. Uh, So I remember we went to a field near our house. Um, Now, those were back in the days when there were a field near our house. He stood in the foreground and placed his hand in just the right position, and then I used a camera and went a distance away and set the lens so that it looked like he was placing his hand on the top of a building. Well, you've probably all done something similar to that. Um, And although the pictures that I took that day are long gone, uh, I found a couple of examples that have a similar view. Uh, Here's one of them. Uh, You know, two lines that go to a distant place in the future, giving us a perspective of uh, distance going off. And uh, here's another one I thought you would enjoy. (laughs) See, it's all about perspectives. And I think in taking pictures like this, we're actually trying to trick the eye through the camera lens. But there's another understanding of perspective. Rather than thinking about visual perspective, I'd like us to consider a perspective that we use every day. So let's work on a definition. You see, perspective is a particular attitude toward or way of regarding something. It actually is a point of view. And I think that we all carry certain perspectives or attitudes towards people, towards an issue. And I believe even our views toward God and his word are couched in our perspective. So it's important that we realize what specific perspective we're using to interpret and respond to God so that we might best honor and serve him. Well, from the text that was read today in Malachi chapter 3, we learn about two distinct attitudes that the people of Israel had towards God. Well, I, I have determined that the first perspective that these people were exhibiting was an immediate perspective. You see, they were struggling, these people of Israel, with their perspective towards God. And we learned that from the very beginning of this study seven weeks ago. Remember that the Israelites that Malachi were speaking to had some deep, deep problems with God. In chapter 1, we learned about the priests. They were offering food that was spoiled and sacrifices that were blame, or I'm sorry, blind, lame, and sick. They knew it was wrong, but they thought they could get away with it. Why? Because they couldn't sense God's presence. Malachi warned them that God was mighty displeased with that, and so he used some strong terms to describe his displeasure. So what I'd ask you to do is, uh, while you're in Malachi 3, just turn a page to the right, and let's go over to chapter 1. And uh, I want us to just review just real quickly about God's displeasure about their perspective in how they were, these priests were serving him. In verse 6, you can see the words there. God says, where is my honor? Where is my respect? 
And uh, a couple of verses later, in verse 8, God, speaking of the sacrifice, says, is it not evil? That's quite a way for God to speak about a sacrifice that was being offered to him. And let's go down two verses more in chapter 1, verse 10, where God says, I am not pleased with you. And one more time in chapter 1, verse 12, where God says, then he's speaking about his name. My name is profaned. The table of the Lord is defiled. So clearly the priests had not followed God's directions in offering holy and acceptable sacrifices. And so God promised to discipline their shoddy approach to this holy practice. But as we have learned through the weeks, the priests weren't the only ones that harbored an improper perspective towards God. Moving into chapter 2, we learn that the families of these Israelites were in shambles. They worshiped foreign gods. They were not following God's law in marriage and divorce. Many men had broken their covenant with their wives and taken other women. In spite of these wrongs, think about this, in spite of these wrongs, the people still offered sacrifices and came to the temple to worship. But as we learned last week, there's even more. From chapter 3, we learned that the people of Israel also robbed God of his tithes and offerings. Brett covered that very carefully last week, and I appreciated that so much. During all of these dastardly deeds, the people still thought that they could worship God and expect him, God, to honor them. Well, today we read of yet another offense that the Israelites had towards God. In 3.13, we see that their words, you know, you've got to turn your page back again. 3.13, we see that their words were actually arrogant against me, against God. Well, I had to determine what this word arrogant actually meant. And so when you look it up, it means to be strong against or to bind, to hold close together. It's used a lot of times in the Old Testament, more than 250 times. For example, it was used to describe the famine uh, during the um, time when Joseph was prince of Egypt. You remember the great famine that was there. And it was also the same word used to describe Pharaoh's heart, his hardened heart towards God when he wouldn't let the Israelites go. So when Malachi says that the words of the people were arrogant towards God, they were expressing this tension that existed in their perspective towards God. And this tension was expressed through their unfaithful ways of honoring and serving God. And as we just read, God was not pleased. So I had to ask this question. Why in the world did this happen? What was going on in the hearts of the people and the priests. Well, I, all, I believe it all stemmed from this improper perspective that they had for God and his care for his people. Their expectation was that God would honor them simply because they were called the chosen people. And when they couldn't sense his presence, they simply went through the motions. They went through the motions of offering the sacrifices and 
honoring the festivals, there was no meaning in their hearts. In fact, they saw other people get away with it, so they figured, why not do the same? You see, their perspective about God was all wrong. It was what was happening in the immediate. It was based on feelings rather than truth. But from the scripture passage today, we learn that there was also another perspective out there. And I call this an eternal perspective. In verses 16 to 18, we read about this other group of people. It seems that even in the large numbers of people that had come back from captivity in Babylon, that there was a group of people that was described as those who feared the Lord. We see it there in uh, uh, verse 16. You see, those that were unfaithful contrasted with those people who feared God and loved him and honored him. So we read that they not only feared God, this group of people, but that they fellowshiped with one another. I, I don't want us to miss this short passage. Malachi writes in uh, 3.16 that they spoke to one another. I, I think it was a fellowship time, and it was filled with encouragement for each of them to keep holy and to keep righteous living before God, even though everyone else around them was not doing that. So God listened to them, and, and look, look at it. it. It says in verse 16 that he wrote their names in the book of remembrance. Well, I can't read a passage like that and not figure out what was the book. I mean, wouldn't you? Thank you. I'm glad you did. Okay. So, we learn from Scripture that there are actually two specific books in which names are written. The first is called the Book of Life. Now, I'm going to need you to use your Bibles or your holy hand phones, uh, whichever it might be, and turn over to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, and we're going to look in verse 28. Psalm 69, 28. We're talking about the book of life. The psalmist writes, May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. So there we have a reference to the book of life. But there's another one in Psalms. This one's in uh, Psalm 139. So you have to go quite a few pages to the right. Psalm 139 and verse 16. We actually use this uh, passage quite a bit to talk about the unborn. Psalm 139, 16. The psalmist writes, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book, that's the book of life, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So, every person who is born has their names written in this book. Every person. And I would say even the unborn. However, we also learn, and this is a shuddering thought, we learn that some names can be erased from this book. Uh, 
There's several references to this, but I want to bring up one in Revelation chapter 3. Here we read, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There's another reference that shows up about names being erased from this book, and it happens in Exodus chapter 32. You don't need to turn there. Um, I'll call it up in just a second. But this was in reference to those people who worshipped the golden calf. You remember the time. Moses is up on the mountain. The people are down below. Aaron builds the golden calf, and the people are worshipping him. So, How does a person have their name blotted out of the book of life? Well, God actually answers that when he talks to Moses. And here it is. It's in Exodus 32, verse 33. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Well, there's one more reference that we need to look at. And this time, you've got to go all the way back to Revelation. So uh, turn your Bibles to Revelation, and we're going to chapter 20. This is the final reference to what is known as the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. We read there, and it says, And I saw the dead, the great, and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Of life. But we have to jump to verse 15 to find out what happens to those people whose names are erased from the book of life. We read this And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. That sounds really tough. So we have the book of life. We have all of the names of people who are ever born written, their names are written there, but some people's names can be erased. Well, in order to fully understand this, we have to look at a second book, and this is called The Lamb's Book of Life. Since we're here in Revelation, just look over at chapter 21, and in verse 27, we find a reference to this other book, called the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 21, 27. And here we read, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, from the text it seems clear that those who truly honor God by accepting Jesus' blood as the atoning sacrifice for their sins and have remained faithful during times of great apostasy, this is talking in Revelation about the end times, these names shall never be erased from the Lamb's book of life. I believe these are the people that Malachi is referencing uh, way back in chapter 3, so we'll need to go back there. They are the faithful remnant who have remained true to God's laws, and they have retained fellowship with one another. 
So notice in verse 17, we're back in Malachi 3, 17. Notice here that God says, they will be mine. They will be my own possession. You see, these people honored God by having this eternal perspective. Even when they didn't sense God's presence, they remained faithful to him. So God recognizes those people who practice righteousness and holiness, and he listens, and he writes their names in his book. And those names will never be blotted out. Well, my prayer is that everyone here desires to have that eternal perspective by being faithful to God. That's, that's my prayer, and, and I think it's the prayer of many of us here. But how do we develop such a perspective? I mean, this is the teacher in me. I, I get this thought that we have to have an eternal perspective, but I want to know, how do I get that? Is it given to us automatically when we receive salvation? Or are we partly responsible for actively listening and seeking God, deepening our faith in him and his word? Well, I believe this passage from Malachi teaches us three distinct ways that we can develop an eternal perspective. That eternal perspective then would motivate us and support us in faithfully honoring God even when times are tough and everyone else around us is doing something different. So step one, step number one, know the truth. Well, we've probably all heard the verse that God's word is truth. It actually shows up in John 17, 17, where Jesus is praying something called his high priestly prayer for his disciples. But there are many other references in the Old and New Testament that state the claim of God's word being particularly, ultimately, absolutely true. So I wanted to show just a couple of those uh, for you today. Uh, the first one comes up in Psalm 119, verse 160. It says, the sum of thy word, that means the total of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. And here's another one that comes in Proverbs, uh, probably written by Solomon, who says, every word of God is tested, and when it's tested, it's found to be true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So, the question is, if we believe God's word is true and all his ways are to be followed, then what are we doing to study, to learn, to hide God's words in our heart? And I would say that that's a serious need. For every Christian, every person who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You see, the essence of knowing God and developing a proper perspective towards him is to know him. And every time I write that, I, I underline it, and sometimes I put it in boldface. Because we have the honor of having the complete word of God so that we can gain knowledge and wisdom about God but we have to study it so that we can know God's nature, so that we can know his righteous ways, and we can understand the paths that he has set before us so that we can fully know him and accept his truth. So step number one, 
was to know the truth. But step number two, <laughs> I call this utilizing the illuminator. Well, we should all know that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're, we're given another significant gift, and that gift is the presence of the Holy Spirit. This person of the Godhead actually dwells in each of us, each individual who is genuinely saved. However, the work of the Holy Spirit continues throughout our entire lives, and he illuminates us to the truth of his word. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in great detail, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. It's a little bit long, but hang here with me. He says, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Now, I want you to note that the word Spirit there is capitalized. And every time the Word of God capitalizes the word Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit. So we should read it that way. For the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the Spirit? Now, that's the conscience. That's our inner spirit. It's not God's Holy Spirit a person except the spirit of the person that is in him. So also, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Holy Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the Holy Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. I just think this is an amazing aspect of being a believer of God, of Jesus Christ, and having God's Holy Spirit, who not only dwells inside of us, but also teaches us the truth about God. You see, our eyes are opened to God's truth when the Holy Spirit comes in, but we also need to recognize that that wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about this in just a couple of verses later. Here in verse 14, he says, But a natural man, that is the unregenerated man, the, the man who has not yet accepted Christ as his Savior, does not accept the things of the Holy Spirit of God. Why? For their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Well, this is true of all of us before we accepted Christ, and it's true of all of those people today who have not yet accepted him. They cannot possibly understand the things of God because they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Their understanding of spiritual things is hindered by the absence of the Holy Spirit. But praise God, we can know and we can understand the truths about God because he has revealed them to us. He has illuminated our minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. But step number three is also very important, and Malachi hits on this so clearly. This is called the fellowship of the saints. Now, to understand this, we're going to need to turn to Acts chapter 2. So would you just turn there? Just very quickly, we understand that Acts chapter 2 is talking about the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit truly was given to all people who believed in Jesus. But we see at the end of this day of Pentecost and a significant event happening. And it shows up in verses 41 and 42. 
So we're in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. And the narrative tells us, So then, those who had received his word, that's accepted Jesus, were baptized. And they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. That was quite a revival, huh? And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, look at this, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It, it became a very natural occurrence for believers in Jesus Christ after they accepted him and were baptized that they fellowshiped together. Uh, we learned from Scripture many things about the impact of fellowship. And I, I just want to remind you of a few. Uh, there are so many. I, I only picked out a few. And, and For example, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes that we demonstrate our obedience to God when we fellowship one with another. In Romans 15, Paul writes that we bring unity and harmony to one another when we fellowship together. Uh, and right now, actually, we are practicing fellowship, and Paul writes that we can benefit from mutual instruction, one with another. This happens here. This happens in small groups. This happens in our ABFs. This happens in our children's programs. Further, Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that fellowshipping together demonstrates our reverence for Christ himself. So this fellowship was important to the Israelites during Malachi's time, and I believe it's important for us today. We need to remember that what Malachi was pointing to here was a group of people who among this remnant that returned from the captivity, there was a group of people who retained their faithful fellowship with one another and their fellowship with God. But if you think about biblical truth, that, that's always happened. I mean, uh, in your mind, go back to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Just remember, these were the days of Noah. And how, how, is, how are those days described? <laughs> everyone was evil and wicked. I mean, everyone was evil and wicked. And then we land on this verse at the end of uh, verse 8, it's chapter 6, verse 8 in Genesis, where it says, God still had Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But how about this? Okay, those of you ladies who have been in the first Kings study, studying about um, the kings, you must remember the study of Elijah. There was a time where Elijah had run away from Jezebel. He feared for his life. And he thought he was all alone. Remember that? In 1 Kings 19, here's what God says to Elijah about being the only one standing. God says, uh, hey, bud, I've got 7,000 other people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. God's always had a remnant. But I think of another one. I think of Daniel. Now, this is definitely linked to the captivity. About a hundred years before Malachi wrote this, the people went into captivity. And everyone from Israel at that point was taken to Babylon. But there were a few people 
And they're even named. You remember? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Oh, you probably remember them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were faithful, right? They were so faithful to God that God honored their faithfulness through all of their lives. Why? They had the proper perspective. They had this eternal perspective that no matter what was happening to them at that very moment, even if it meant going into captivity, they would remain faithful to God. So, now that we know that there are two groups of people, the unfaithful and the faithful, and we've learned that there are steps that we can take to remain faithful, how do we apply this to our current situation? Well, I decided that it would be important, if I'm talking about our current situation, for us to look at what's going on in this world today. So if you hold to the truths that we just explored, I want you to understand that you are actually part of what is known as a worldview minority, a biblical worldview that you are now in the minority. I'm going to show you some uh, statistics that prove that. The secular world, then, that surrounds us, each of us, is becoming increasingly antagonistic and even a bit hostile towards people who have this biblical worldview. Uh, you don't need to go far in your newspaper or in your newsfeed to find that out today. And this hostile environment now begins to put pressure on Christians to question what they believe, to maybe be more secretive about their attitudes and their behaviors and how they live out their faith each day. So I've made some generalized statements. Uh, let's support it with a few facts. In 2017, there was a group who did a survey across all of America called the American Culture and Faith Institute. And they, in their survey, determined that just 10% of all Americans hold to a biblical worldview. Now out of 350 million people that are approximately in our country today, only 10% had a biblical worldview. By 2020, three years later, they did a repeat of that survey and that number had dropped to 6% in three years. But even more shocking, is the group from 18 years old to 29 years old, the number was 2%. 2% of those in that age group had a biblical worldview. In a recent Barna survey, they determined that only 17%, get this, 17% of people who call themselves Christian consider their faith important. Only 17%. Now that really challenges me. It challenges me in the face of holding a biblical worldview. You're not only getting attacked maybe from the outside, the secular world, but also from the inside. Now if you pause and think about it, sounds a little bit like Malachi's time, doesn't it? Only a small group of people remained faithful to God. So, 
how in the world do we retain our faithful attitudes, our faithful behaviors, not only in a hostile world that is around us, but also even in our churches today? Well, I'm going to give you two thoughts that I'll leave you with this morning. First thought, we need to recalibrate our view of God as our moral authority. You see, the surveys explain a little bit deeper information. In um, interviewing evangelical Christians, only 51% of those indicate that the Bible is the source of guidance that they are most likely to depend, to depend upon when they have an important moral decision to make. 51% of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. So where do the other 49% go if they don't go to the Bible? Well, 23% of them say they go to trusted people, and 13% say they rely upon themselves. That's scary. I can't rely upon myself. I need God. I need his wisdom. I need the Holy Spirit's direction in my life. And where do I find it? I find it in the Bible. And I need to assure myself that God is the one who is my main source, my main moral authority in my life. But secondly, I think we need to enhance our ability to discern truth from God's perspective. Now, this means live in a sense of how things look like in God's eyes. Uh, Paul wrote about this to the Thessalonians. He, he said these words. He said, examine everything. He, he didn't say just examine the scriptures. He didn't say just examine what's going on in life or in politics. He said, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But Paul wasn't the only one who wrote about that. The apostle John wrote about that as well in 1 John 4. You might remember this, where John writes, do not believe every spirit, little s. Do not believe it, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So the only way that we can discern truth from evil is through God's eyes. And the only way that we can know what God sees, what God is thinking, is to study his word, to be deeply involved in what he is trying to teach us. Uh, I want to end with this verse this morning. Paul wrote it to his dear son, Timothy. He wanted to teach him so many things. And one of the truths that he left for Timothy, and he leaves for us, and this was Paul's last letter, are these words. I think they speak to us too. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman or a workwoman who does not need to be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Ashamed of how we handle accurately the word of truth. Well, from our passage today, we learn what? 
We learn that there are two kinds of Christians in this world. The, those that are reckless, reckless with their faith. They complain about God. They complain when God doesn't seem to be present in their lives. And number two, those that remain faithful to God even when times are tough. They honor him. Why? Because they know his thoughts. They've studied. They've listened to the Holy Spirit. They have received his truth. And they commit the rest of their lives to honor God with their attitudes, with their behaviors. They, they have the right perspective. So we've been reminded from both Malachi and other passages of the Scripture that just showing up is not sufficient to please God. Now, even coming to church, and let me tell you, I've been coming to church my whole life. I think it's the right thing to do. No two ways about it. But just coming to church is insufficient. Notice, I said it's insufficient. You need to commit to study to focus on God. You see, the people in Malachi's days, just showing up didn't get them anywhere. As a matter of fact, it got them a lot of displeasure from God. But when you remain faithful, when you study, when you know, when you embrace God's truth and live it every day, God will listen to you. He will honor you, and he will write your name in the Lamb's book of life, never to be blotted out. Let's pray. Father God, your word clearly is true, and you have revealed that to us through your Holy Spirit, and we are so grateful. God, we could not even survive in this world today without that knowledge and that assurance. And so, Lord, we ask that you would encourage each of our hearts. Inside of us, the Holy Spirit could be speaking to us right now. Lord, I pray that we would listen to the prompting of that Spirit to become serious about our study so that we would know you, so that we would be counted among the faithful who would honor you and please you in all that we think, do, and say, all for the honor and glory of the name of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray it. Amen.